0: Well, good morning. We're going to do one more scripture reading, the text that we're going to talk about. So would you stand with me this morning one more time? If you're able to do so, please stand. We're going to read from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and then we're going to dig into that this morning as we pick up the series we've been doing on 1 Peter. So uh, here are these words today. I'm going to start chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. I'm reading from the New English translation, um, and uh, I'm not sure what's on the screen, but here is, here is this one. So get rid of all evil and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Verse two, and yearn like newborn infants for pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up to salvation if you have experienced the Lord's kindness. And so, verse four, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men but chosen priceless in God's sight, you yourselves as living stones are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, and to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it says in Scripture, Look, I lay in Zion a stone, a chosen priceless cornerstone, and whoever believes in him will never be put to shame. So you who have believed see his value. But for those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stumbling block, and a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you all are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own, so that you may proclaim the virtues of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are God's people, you once were shown no mercy, but now you have received mercy. Amen. The word of the Lord. Say thanks be to God. Be to God. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for what you're doing here at Pilgrim. And God, as we come together, we often have idealized versions of what community will be, what real community is, messy and in process, and has moments of great love overflowing and has moments of tension <laughs> And so even as we gather in our public gathering as a church, be with us today. Holy Spirit, do what only you can do. I'm I'm in process. I'm a saint and overcoming the delusions of sin like everyone else here. So continue to work through the foolishness of preaching this ancient speech act by the power of your Holy Spirit, the anointing of your spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You can be seated this morning. Again, uh, we're glad you're here this morning. My name's Shell or Shelby. Um, I sometimes go by the shortened shortened version of it because Shelby uh, has crossed the line. It is clearly more a feminine name these days than a masculine name. Although I keep hearing that there are occasionally male Shelby's that exist, I have not ever met one in person. Uh, but I've met a lot more uh, female Shelby's. So call me whatever you wish. Um, we're going to look a little more at this. We have been going through First Peter slowly here at Pilgrim Church and. We finished up a topical series where we pick a topic and say, what does scripture and the church say about that? And we do that. We often rotate with some going just through a verse very simply. And sometimes topics need to be addressed. I almost changed my sermon this week because someone who some of us respect, some of us don't respect, made some awful comments about women in ministry. And it got me and a whole bunch of people in North America really worked up. I almost changed my sermon to talk about, let's talk about 1 Timothy and what it says when Paul says, you know, keep women in silent, but how do you look at that with the rest of what Paul says? I almost preached that sermon. I figured I need another year here at Pilgrim before I can do that without packing my suitcases first. Um... But my bias, I'm, I was raised, became a Christian in a conservative church that argued from a conservative view of Scripture that women should fully be in ministry, ordained in the whole nine yards. My mother was a pastor for a season as well. So my cards have always been on the table with you, dear beloved people at Pilgrim. We don't all agree. I understand that. But I, some one of these Sundays, I'll tell you why. You don't have to agree with me, but you can be wrong. Uh, okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and how we should read First Timothy and Titus and what Paul is saying culturally. Uh, great biblical scholars talk about that. Anyway, I didn't preach that sermon. Aren't you glad? That was me not preaching that sermon. Did you catch that? Some of you are not awake yet. You'll, you'll be with me in a minute. Um, so we're going to jump into first, into First Peter here in just a second. I do want to remind you one more thing. On the foyer table, uh, there is... Uh, printouts of the 15 days of prayer for the Hindu world, uh, and so we are in day eight, and there's another week. Please pick up one of these, take it with you. If you're using the daily lectionary as your devotional guide, you can weave this in with the prayer portion perfectly. Today, within the Hindu world, is the festival of Dwali, festival of light of of one God overcoming a demon, and of course, the light overcoming the darkness within that, and. Uh, And then it also gives us prayer points as Christians, how to pray for our Hindu brothers and sisters who are estranged from God through Jesus Christ. And so we pray with respect, but we also pray in belief that Jesus is the true light of the world. And uh, so we lean into that tension of blessing and respecting and yet hanging on to the outrageous claim that Jesus is, in fact, the light, the truth, the way. And so uh, this will help you do that in a respectful way, both to learn and to pray and obviously in Vancouver, many of our friends uh, may be Hindu or have come out of Hinduism. Uh, uh, our guest next Sunday was not Hindu, but he was Indian, and he's going to be sharing uh, uh, the message next Sunday as well. So he was from India originally, and so it should be a good Sunday. I invite you to that as well. I think there's no other pastor sneak-in announcements that I need to say uh, at this point, but this is going to be a great week of outreach and serving and, and fun, so I encourage you to get involved with all the things and invite friends and uh, check it out, please. I encourage you to do that. Um, Living Stones, 1 Peter Chapter 2. I remember in my graduate degree, um, in my doctorate degree, I had to take some electives uh, beyond my dissertation topic, uh, and part of them were could connect or didn't have to connect with what I was going to write on. And so one of the courses was on Hinduism. And as we are in this time of Dwali within Hinduism, I visited one of the largest Hindu temples in North America outside of uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul, Minnesota, in a suburb called Maple Grove. And it's kind of way out in the field, but as you approach, it's this massive sort of white alabaster-looking building, which as you get closer, you see is carved with all kinds of ornate of the gods and the avatars all around it, And this huge temple, I think it's 43,000 square feet of space, just huge place. One of the largest ones in North America, if not the largest. And as you approach it, it's sort of weird because you're in this Minnesota cornfield out on the edge of this suburb and this thing rises up in the distance. And I visited during the festival of Holi, Holi, uh, which is another one of these light overcoming darkness festivals as well. There's a lot of those themes within Hinduism. And uh, it was quite the experience going in there, this magnificent structure, this edifice, this huge temple as it rose. And I went up into the area where worship was offering puja, the, puja the, the giving offerings to the different gods in front of the idols. And of course, this Pentecostal boy who was raised in a small town uh, is praying in the spirit as I'm going through all of this and just say, Lord, be with me. And uh, then down in the community center... And there were a few people, most of the people were from Southeast Asia, South Asia, uh, you know, ethnicity-wise, well, there were a few people, but I stuck out quite a bit. Um, and so I'm visiting, and, and I sat into this, um, what was a kids' program, and it was basically sort of like a, a Christmas pageant, but with, I forget, I have to pull up the names again, but the Holy Festival, where they're reenacting some of the, the themes of, uh, the God overcoming the demon and all of this. And so it was very interesting, but it was almost like a Christmas pageant and it, it, it reminded me of in terms of the vibe and the atmosphere. Uh, it was very interesting. And all of that, I thought, there's so many edifices, so many stones in this place. So, this, this is a huge temple built. And within ancient Judaism, the temple, this huge edifice in the middle of Jerusalem was also a place of worship And a place where you came to sort of experience oneness with God and to offer sacrifices. And so when we get into Christianity and the revelation of God in Jesus, I have all of these images of buildings and temples and shrines. We're talking about remodeling this room, by the way. We do not see this room as a temple. Uh, Talking about maybe updating it, moving to chairs, reorienting the room so the windows are in the back. For all of you that want to get up during my sermon, it's easier for you to do that without us all seeing you. Um... You know, but really, you know, the room's 40 years old. It needs some love. It needs some to reflect the new life. Uh, But edifices and temples have been rolling around in the back of my mind as I've been reading this text. So, the big ideas we want to look at this morning as we walk through, and this is a simple sermon where we just walk through the verses and talk about them, is what is going on in terms of what God is building in his people. Now, remember, we talked about what's the background of the people that Peter is writing to. Some of them were immigrants into what would be the far west side of Asia from other places in the world. Some of them were locals who became Christians. Some of them were Jews who became Christians. Some of them were non-Jews who became Christians. But they were immigrants, many of them. And even if they weren't literally immigrants, he uses this imagery and he says that as when you choose to follow Christ, it is as if you are choosing the path of being an immigrant permanently in the world as it is. Because your first loyalty shifts. We just finished up an election this week. And like a good immigrant to Canada, I tried to sneak in and vote. That's what Americans would do if you're immigrant. Anyway, whatever. Uh, no, I didn't. Uh, but we had this big election, calling on our loyalties to Canada and, and all of that, whether they were born here or we've been uh, you know, naturalized into Canada, Canadian citizenship. Uh, this idea of nationality Peter uses, and he says, when you follow Christ, something shifts in your first Allegiance. So let's look at these verses as he's building on that theme. And then the rest of 1 Peter, he starts to get really specific about application. But in chapter 1, in the first half of chapter 2, he's laying foundation. So join with me this morning. Let's look at this again. So verse 1, if you're following along in your paper Bible or on the outline, I encourage you to do so. He says to them, so you've received this word about Jesus. And he says, so get rid of all evil and all deceit and hypocrisy, envy and all slander. So he begins with this interesting list in verse 1. These are the lists of things that destroy community. If we're going to be a new nation, a royal priesthood, as he concludes, uh, a new race of humans on the earth by the work of Jesus within us, there are things that absolutely destroy community. And he says these things are things that we need to literally put off. The imagery here is of stripping off all your clothing before you were baptized to take off these things as if they were clothing. Remove them and then be clothed with something else. But he says these are the things we need to be vigilant about, about taking care of in how we tend to our relationships in our midst. Are you with me this morning? I just want to make sure. Are we all awake? Say amen. amen. Okay, all right. My coffee is mostly decaf, in case you're wondering. All right. So he says get rid of these things. Put them off. Take them off. Evil is the most general word in this list, he says. It's, it's opposite virtue of virtue In the Greek tradition, evil or virtue, or we would say something that's not virtuous would be evil. And he says, all evil, all deceit. And then he gives examples of how does evil often manifest in the local church? There's people that claim to love the body but gossip and destroy. And so he says, take this off. Malice is a desire to harm others, often hidden behind apparently good actions, I think there was a a TV show years ago that talked about this idea of frenemies. He said, don't be frenemies, okay? Malice. (laughs) Deceit is misleading by telling a lie. My children, when they were little, they don't do this anymore because they're now wholly wonderful teenagers. They're going to attack me for saying this. I just know. I love you, children. I'll keep feeding you, so we'll keep the deal going. Uh, Let's say, well, I I didn't lie, but excluding some of the truth in order to mislead is deceit. None of you did that when you were small children, right? Well, Paul's saying in the church as adults, don't do that. Deceit. Let your yes be yes, your no be no, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. This destroys community, a workplace driven by deceit. People doing political moves within work by leaving out important information in order to mislead someone else, to set them up for a failure. This is not how Christians are called to operate if Jesus is our source and our center. Love does not deceive. He says, hypocrisy. It's a kind of deceit where you pretend to be different from what you really are. You perform and hide, pretending good motives, but in reality, you're driven by maybe broken, selfish desires. Don't be a hypocrite, he says. In the church, when Jesus is not our center of our identity and performing and hiding becomes, we can easily slip into hypocrisy. We should be a place where we can strip off hypocrisy and be who we are, both the blessed and the broken. In order for true transformation to take place, hypocrisy must die, but it's an ongoing battle in our hearts. Envy, longing for what other people have, envy, he says, put that off, because that will twist how we relate to one another if we're envious about each other's lives. And then finally, slander, talking other people down, slandering them so these are qualities that interfere with love and these are qualities that the community of faith always wrestles with overcoming and if we aren't wrestling with these we're probably surrendering to them and assuming that's the normal state of affairs in the church In church revitalization, often there's toxic attitudes that we have to deal with, that we have let go for years and years and years. It's okay, that person always says that or spouts off about that. That's just who they are. Well, it may be who they are, but it's not the best version of themselves, and we must lovingly find ways to call each other to account for things that destroy community, Peter is telling these Christians and us by extension. Amen? Mm. Hmm. When we say amen, it's just an affirmation. So be it. I agree. It may apply to me. It may apply to someone else. If this applies to someone else that you know, say amen. <laughs> They're like, he's setting us up for something. We can feel it. No. <laughs> All right. And so it's these things we need to put off in community to be a community of Christ followers. And moving on in verse two, he says, so instead of filling our mouths and our words with these things, Yearn milk like newborn infants, so that by it you may grow up into salvation. The New Testament uses this language of maturity and immaturity a lot. We are to be like children in some cases, wonder, joy, openness to the Holy Spirit in our worship, uh, in reading of the word, contemplative practices, and in other things we're to grow up in. And here, Peter uses this in a positive only way. Spiritual milk is something we should always yearn, and he defines it as the sense of the word of the Lord, that we know Christ and we know the scriptures and in that it helps us continue to be nourished. If you have experienced the Lord's kindness, do these things, verse three. Verse three also alludes to Psalm 33, nine, says this, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see most more literally, that the Lord is delicious. Think of your favorite food. Think of something that you yearn for. Think of whatever it is you want to go out and eat for lunch after this service this morning. Think of that. And he's saying this is the kind of craving or desire that he wants us to develop for the Scripture and for knowing who Jesus is through the Gospels and through experience in community. Taste and see that the Lord is good. We grow in virtue by drinking from the Word. We have to replace our patterns of thinking Uh, with Jesus as our core identity and now practices that flow out of that core identity in order to grow in him. All right, so let's get to the last few sections here. We're gonna look at verses four through five. Uh, As we were reading this and as I was studying this this week, verse four says, so as you come to him a living stone, he brings in the imagery of a stone rejected by men but chosen by God, priceless in God's sight, And verse 5 says, then you yourselves are living stones, so Jesus is the stone, now we are living stones, are built up uh, as a spiritual house to offer, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. As I read this and then the next verse here where he quotes from Isaiah, there was a song when I became a Christian uh, when I was a kid, and it must have been like the 80s, by a guy named Leon Patello. Anybody know who Leon Patello, does his name mean anything to anybody here, Leon Patello? And the song was something like this, I lay in Zion, or I I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, and it's a whole song based on this text. And it comes up and it builds up into the chorus and it bursts out more from the prophet's wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father. I lay in Zion a foundation, a stone. Of course, that stone is revealed as Jesus. Okay, so let's dig into this and make some sense of it. Verses 4 and 5, he says, so when we come to Christ, Christ is the image of a living stone. The ancient Israelites had the view of the stones of the temple. And in a very real sense, their prophets speak of a point when, where we will meet with God, not in a building, but a sense of God being everywhere, this living stone. And he identifies the stone as Jesus, that all of those stone verses in Old Testament were all pointing to Christ. Now, when the people wrote that in the Old Testament, they didn't necessarily know that. They weren't necessarily prophetically saying it. Some of them might have been a little bit, but they didn't know who that would be or what that would look like. And so here, these people coming to Christ identify and read back into Old Testament that Jesus was that stone. And that happens again and again and again in the New Testament. That also tells us something about how should we read the Old Testament. I'm geeking out for a second. Stay with me. Look at your neighbor and say, it's going to be okay. Okay, Harry, stay awake with me. Stay with me, brother. All right, all right, thumbs up. This is just a little side trip and excursus. How the New Testament authors use the Old Testament is fascinating. They don't do what fundamentalist Christians often do, which is read it literally verse by verse and apply it one to one from that day with a little bit of cultural interpretation smack into our context. They do a few more steps than that. They may ask, well, what was happening? But in fact, most of the New Testament authors look for Jesus and try to find Jesus in everything in the Old Testament. And remember, many of these writers were Jews themselves. Peter was Jewish. He understood the Jewish tradition. He was a Jewish follower of Jesus. So he's not coming at this outsider trying to do violence to the text of Judaism. He's coming at it as a Jew who now sees Jesus as the fulfillment of what's going on in the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. How he reads the text is interesting. He looks and he says in everything, he looks for Jesus in it. The early church fathers did this. So when we read Old Testament, we have to be careful. Pop atheists will often rip stuff out of context and see, well, if that's what Christians believe and na, 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 it's a whole bunch of hooey or, you know. But the reality is the only people that read the Bible like that are fundamentalists. So if you're hearing someone read the scriptures that way, they're not reading it through Jesus or as the New Testament shows us and instructs us to read the Old Testament. And Peter's doing that in spades in what we're about to unpack here. Okay, did that make sense? Say yes if it did. Okay, great. So he's saying you're being built... You're being built up, verse 5, as living stones. Scott McKnight says it actually might be better to translate this, there's a debate on this, as build yourselves, or we might say build the spiritual house in this way. God is at work, join God in what he's doing, build with him what's happening here. So as you come to him, so we as Christians have the right and the ability to come straight to God I am not your mediator. Your brother or sister is not your mediator. He says, come to God. As you come to Jesus and respond to him, you are becoming part of something God is building on Christ, that we are each a stone being built into this spiritual temple that you in some ways are a walking temple, a walking place for the presence of God to dwell. When you follow Christ, his spirit dwells within you and you become a place where you can encounter God within your spirit and his spirit and others can encounter God with you. When we gather in public worship, when we're serving out in the world, in our various places of vocation and talent, keep this in mind that when you become a Christian, he says, his spirit dwells within you, you are a walking part of this great temple that God is building. Wherever you are, the presence of God is made present and real and manifest. Wherever you are, the potentiality for wonder and amazement and joy to break forth is there because his spirit is in you and you are part of a living temple walking around all over Vancouver. This is part of what God is doing all across the globe. He's saying you are being built into this living house of encounter of the Lord and God's spirit. Think about how that should change how we look at each other that we are all part of this living thing that God is building. Think about how that changes our relationships. It's not just individualized, by the way, it's also communal. We Together we are this thing that God is building. It's a lot to say, but I'll keep going on. So he uses the imagery from infants craving spiritual milk of the word of Christ to being living stones in which Christ is the core stone, the keystone, the cornerstone, or the capstone, depending on how we want to read that text. And he says this, verse 6, it says in scripture, I lay in Zion a stone, a chosen stone, priceless cornerstone, and if we believe you will never be put to shame. Why does he say that? Why does he quote that verse? Well, he's identifying Christ as what the prophets were yearning for, but he's also talking to people who have been rejected by family for following Christ. He's also talking to people who may have lost real inheritance for following Christ. He's talking to people that have chosen to be outcasts within our earthly cultures in order to be a blessing back to them and not necessarily people recognizing that blessing And he says this, you may have experienced shame in your culture for following Jesus. You may have experienced shame by choosing a different path, but in Christ, the ultimate honor is given to you. You will never be put to shame where it really counts in the vast scope and arc of history and the future of creation and all that is. You will never be put to shame. Oh, there's more. There's so much he packs in here my notes here, make sure, oh yeah, see I'm preaching ahead of my notes already, look at that, we're almost done, whoo, <laughs> This shame and honor contrast in verses 7 and 8, and he goes on and he says this, so the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Who were the builders? Well, of course, within this context, he's saying that many of those that should have been open to receiving Christ rejected this very stone, he said, no, 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 he's not the Messiah, he's not the one we're looking for. And he says, verse 8, a stumbling stone and a rock to trip over. And he says, they stumble because they don't receive or they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So Jesus has this function in our life of something that we can build on or something we can trip over. Peter's saying that when you have received Christ, you are now building upon Christ. But the thing about rejecting Jesus is he's saying it's, it's, a, it's a word that we cannot, we don't want to hear in modern Western culture. It's something that our ears have been dulled to, and we want to just push away, but he's pushing in. and In the ancient Roman Greco world, it would have been very similar because there it was just, let's assimilate the gods. Let's, let's just everybody get along and all hold hands and everything's fine and all paths lead the same place. Burn a little incense to the emperor, do a little bit of this. But Jews and then Christians... It took it even to another layer. Uh, They didn't see it that way. And Peter says, in fact, with Jesus, he's a stone that you, you either build on him or you'll trip over him. There is no other option. You build on him or you trip over him. Now, I'm not here today to manipulate or guilt anyone. It's a choice we make. But he said that in Christ, there's something, there's a way to build life in which we flourish. And without Christ, there's something in our lives that are missing. And it's something that causes us to sort of grope in the darkness, to stumble around. And so he says, this is something to these Christians in the minority who have chosen to be sojourners and resident aliens, even within their own cultures. He says, in following Christ, it's either a rock you've built on or you stumble over and you are building your life on him. Jesus applies Psalm 118.22 to himself. And Peter adds Isaiah 8.14. You can look at those references later if you wish. They're in your outline. So the stone that was rejected by those that should have received him has now, by God's choice, become the stone to build life on. It's just as offensive today as it would have been in the first century pluralistic society. Jesus makes his ultimate claim on us. And he does this as someone who has died for you, someone who displays outrageous love in his teachings and his ethics in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Greater love has no one than this but to lay down his life. This idea that we are to return love instead of violence in the face of hostilities, whether they're cultural or economic, uh, that we're to respond differently to the cycles of violence and injustice in our world. The teachings of Jesus, it's something we can build upon. It's something that can transform us. We have a choice. And so he tells them this again. He affirms them before he gets into more of the ethical teaching. We get to the last two verses, and I need to take a drink of coffee and breathe, right? Amen. Say, breathe, pastor. Pastor. Our readings were longer, and I think when our readings are longer, I feel pressure to go faster. So (laughs) I'm working on that. Verse 9 and 10. So he's encouraging them and reminding them who they are. Remember, the core piece of Christianity to get first and to continually come back to before you ever get to behavior and ethics is being defined in Christ's love. It's identity first. Say it with me, identity first. Identity in Christ first. above all other claims on who you are. And that changes you as you identify yourself as a child of God, as one who is created, as Genesis says, in the image and likeness of God, male and female, he created them. That 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 lie that the enemy wants to attack is who you are first and foremost. You were created as God's child. You may be estranged from the relationship, but all people are created in the image and likeness of God. So this changes how we treat people around us. This changes how we respond to evil, and it changes how we act as individuals. My first identity is not my, my culture that I've been born into. It's not my economic class. It's not my degree. It's not um, sexuality. It's not any of those things that are so big in our culture. It's Jesus first, and that changes all the other things. Maybe all lifelong, but it's entering into that. And so he says to them, remember who you are. Identity, identity, identity. Before we get into ethics, but you, verse 9, are a chosen race, a Janos. And he's quoting from Isaiah 43, 3, that he, God announces that he is Israel's only savior, that you are a chosen race, that instead of being, how do we say this? Let's put this, how do we make this more common? I think instead of saying that you are identified by your ethnicity first, you've actually been given a new race. You are being created into something new when you follow Christ, a new humanity is some of the, the relation, some of the way to think about it. He says, but you've been chosen by God, you've been selected, you've been elected as a group. And he says this, remember your identity first, not only have you been uh, chosen uh, sort of into this new thing that God's doing by his spirit in people who are open and willing, he says you're also a royal priesthood, a royal priesthood. What is he saying here? He's saying, well, you know, under the old Jewish system, there were priests. And the priests served because they were born into a certain family, the Levites. So they were genetically, they were a ethnicity within the ethnicity. A, a, you know, the, the, the more select group of the select group already. Royalty. We know about royalty in Canada. I don't because I'm still, you know, I'm a resident alien immigrant here. But, I mean, you got the queen. I haven't got a picture of the queen. I haven't framed it yet. But I was going to frame it put in my office to remember to pray for Canada. Uh, the queen makes it easier than Justin Trudeau. So I want to pray for, you know... <laughs> It's not a political statement. I'm just saying I'd rather look at the queen on my wall than Justin Trudeau. That's all. No, nothing else. Don't read anything else into that. Dear Lord. Jesus, save him. (laughs) I can't be a part of the queen's family. I could marry in, but in terms of like... (laughs) (laughs) Yes, fair enough. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Hypothetically, I couldn't marry into the queen's family. We can't marry into the queen's family. It's a genetic line. You can marry in, but you, but unless you're born in, you, you can't choose to be born into the queen's family. I want to be born into the queen's family. You can't make that choice. But here he's saying with the church, when we receive Christ, he used the... earth imagery earlier that we are born into it. We are reborn into it. We are sort of uh, re-genetically something God does spiritually within us. And he says, you are a royal priesthood. You have become part of the royalty of God. You may not have been in the Davidic line within Judaism. And in priesthood, it was the Levitical line, so two family lines. So unless you were born into it, you can't be part of it. Uh, But you now, in Christ, have been made royalty into sort of the new Davidic line. And you've also been made priests, by the way, when you receive Christ. There is something new God does in the church to make these living stones come alive and the consequences of that are you are now seen as royalty, you are the children of the most high God, you have access to God directly uh, both as a king and as a priest before the Lord, you are a royal priesthood. The lines of genetics and blood are changed in Christ. And not only that, he keeps going. If you thought that wasn't enough, he just builds on these metaphors all from Old Testament and now seeing them differently through Christ. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, and now you are a holy nation. Ethnos, you are brought in as a new nation. A new position. These adjectives together tell us that our relationship to God has changed because of Jesus. He is forming a new race, brought potential, brought potential outcasts, from the larger society into this new sense of loyalty around Jesus. And Jesus, of course, is defined by his self-sacrificial love on the cross. There is something new. I like how one put it. He said the first century Christians were often persecuted and executed, not because they worship Jesus in a polytheistic society, what is one more God, but because their higher claim that they worship Christ now as this one true God and who is calling us to have different loyalties, different allegiances. That's radical. I know i got to land this plane. I'm almost there. But I want you to hear these verses, these images. Crave the word. Crave Christ, his teachings, the gospels. It will change then how you respond. Slander, evil, malice. And it takes time and it's a process. We're not there. I'm not there yet, but I'm better than I was 10 years ago. He says, you are being built and living stones, a walking temple, something God is doing on the earth. And then he says this, remember who you are. It doesn't matter where you came from. We can honor those things and respect those things. And we should and work them into worship and work them into all kinds of things. But they're secondary in Christ. He works something new in us, a new race, a new priesthood, a new nation, a people of his own. So that you, as he says in verse uh, 9, may proclaim the virtues of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And he wraps this up and he says, you were once not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you acted as people, always scratching after mercy and acceptance to the things of the world, to our our cultures, to our social economic, to our workplace. I was constantly trying to get my identity out of those things and always feeling like I never could quite measure up imposter syndrome. But he says, in Christ, you have received mercy and you are his. Live with this in your core and then those other things fall into proper place. Identity, identity, identity. You are God's special procession. So how do we wrap this all up and what should we take away with us this morning? I think, again, there's many things, but I think some simple takeouts this morning are this. Number one, all of this points to a radical rereading of how we look at Old Testament. If you are a new believer, don't start with Old Testament. Start with New Testament Because you won't read the Old Testament correctly unless you read it through Jesus. You don't jump over Jesus. If you're in an argument with someone or a heated discussion who may be sort of pop agnostic or atheist and they want to rip out these passages and say, well, look what it says here and look what it says here. They're always almost quoting from the obscure sections of the law that modern Jews don't even read that way, let alone Christians trying to do that. It's ridiculous. So so get a little educated about how the scripture works together. Simple, most simple way to say it is Jesus is the peak of the Bible. We read the Gospels, the Sermon on the Mount at the top, and we see these things, and then we read the Old Testament through Christ. You say, why do we do that? Because the Bible tells us to do it. First Peter does it. Paul does it. Jesus does it. It's a constant refrain in the New Testament. Don't read Old Testament without understanding New Testament. And then the pieces of the story get into place. There's a reason why in worship we're trying to do readings from both so we understand how these things sort of work together. I think that's one takeout, that the church is Israel-extended beyond its old blood and old covenant boundaries, and there's one saving people of God because of what Jesus has done and is doing now by the Spirit. Another takeout this morning is the priesthood of all believers. Would you say that phrase with me, priesthood of all believers? Now, this is not about division between clergy and laity. In fact, New Testament, Ephesians 4, talks about there's a role for offices in the church, there's a role of eldership and pastoral elder and apostle, prophet, teacher, evangelist. There's roles. It's not saying those don't matter, but about the whole church being set apart for God's purposes. My role is not to be a priest, a mediator between you and God. That goes away entirely. We go straight to the Lord. That is So this idea that you have access to God and you mediate God's presence wherever you are when you are full of Christ and seeking him. I think the third takeout this morning is... This issue of rejecting Jesus. And it's hard to read in modern culture because just like ancient world, Christians, the Romans considered Christians atheists, by the way. Think about that. Because Christians taught the scandal of Jesus, the stumbling block that Peter uses here literally means scandal on a scandal. It was scandalous to them, this idea of one God claiming all people, all time, backwards and forwards in time. It was just as scandalous to them as it is to us today, but yet it is part of what it means to follow Jesus. And you may wrestle with that your whole life. And Christians debate well, what does that mean in terms of grace and how God speaks in creation and through other religions? There's a huge theology written about this. Someone who recently deconverted put out some, it was a musician artist, and he said something like, well, Christians don't ever wrestle with this. Well, what about people in other, other times and places? And what about other religions? And it was the dumbest thing this guy possibly could have said, and, and we'll maybe get into this in January about deconstruction questions, uh, but it was crazy because there's 2,000 years of Christians wrestling with this. There's two, literally 2,000 years of written stuff. But just so you know, we do wrestle with this. How does God work in creation? What about my Hindu brother and sister that I would see as estranged from God uh, because of Jesus, uh, you know, and, and they haven't quite crossed that? Where do I, how do I see that, that faith journey for them? Christians have wrestled with those in really specific ways, and there's some really marvelous answers that are both affirming and others that are kind of destructive, Um, but we don't have time to unpack that this morning. We will in January, but we do wrestle with that. He is a stumbling stone or a stone you'll build on. And then finally, let's end this thing. Verses 9 and 10, I think we can take out this concept of missional identity. Verses 9 and 10 are all about the call to be God's people for the benefit of the world. If we're all a royal priesthood, who are we mediating Christ's presence to? One another and the world around us. If we're all demonstrated as a chosen race, a holy nation, a people set apart, what are we demonstrating that to? Well, our families of origin and the world around us here in Vancouver. There's another way to be human. Human. That we should be people who tear down walls because of Christ's outrageous love. We take greater risks because we understand one has risked it all for us and it's changing us. We tear down the walls. We risk relationships uh, uh, getting a little rocky. We push into those places because of God's love compels us. We are being created in an example of what it means to be a new kind of humanity. We lean into that truth if we follow Christ. So here we conclude 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 1 through 10. And then he's going to talk about, so what does this look like if I'm a new nation, a new person, and yet I live in both worlds? How do I walk that, living that out? And then we'll begin to unpack that in the weeks ahead. Would you stand with me this morning if you're able to do so? As always... In a half hour, 40 minute speech, there is, uh, or preaching, there are a lot of things that we can't cover in this text, but I encourage you to go deeper in home church this week, next week with some of the questions, and I encourage you to wrestle with this. And here's the marvelous thing that when we come around the scandal of preaching and we look at the scriptures, we ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate this text to us and to speak to it, through it to us. And so this morning, I believe that maybe someone here heard something for the first time that you needed to hear. And maybe you encountered something about Christ in this passage, and that's the Holy Spirit. There's something in you that's sort of pinged, or there's something in you that sort of like rose up and said, Gurr. Pay attention to those moments. Those are the things where God may be speaking to you, or may, you may be wrestling with what Jesus is doing by his Spirit right now in this place. And so to be faithful to this, as you leave and even tonight, come back to that text. Read it again and say, God, speak to me. Or be honest and say, God, I, I have a hard time believing or dealing with this. Help me. And then be open to what may drop in your mind or encounters you may have this week. Let the word wrestle with you as well. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for your presence here. Thank you for what you are doing Thank you that you call us out of our navel-gazing inwardness to be outward. You call us to be a people on mission with you. And Lord, sometimes it's hard in our own strength, and we know that's the case, and it's always been the case. But you promise to empower us by your spirit through your word and worship and gathering. And so send us with an awareness, a craving for the spiritual milk, the word, an awareness that we are a walking temple, an awareness that you are creating a new people in the church, and at our best, we are outrageously loving, tearing down walls, welcoming with you at our center so we don't need to fear getting our identity out of those other divisive things, the otheringness of the world. We submitted surrender to you again this day. In Jesus' name.